Sometimes I'm reminded of the fact that uh, we don't all know what we're doing when we're doing it. You know, church is an interesting construct, and if you're visiting here and you're new to church as a whole, um, thank you for being here this morning and joining with us. Uh, We've sung some songs to our God, and the applause that you heard was not for the musicians or Derek Martin as he came up to read scripture. (laughs) It was uh, for the God who has saved us. And we are rejoicing over him. Um, We've prayed some prayers. We've heard God's word read. And now we're going to look at a text and open our scriptures to there. If you would join me in John chapter 15. And we're going to pick up in verse 17. Which you will find if you don't have a Bible. There should be a blue Bible in a chair near you. You can go ahead and grab that and turn to page 902 as you see on the screens. And uh, I think you'll get a lot out of the message if you follow along in the text with us. Uh, If you're not familiar with how Bibles work, the the big letter or numbers are the chapter divisions, and then the smaller numbers uh, are the verse numbers. And so we're going to be looking at verses 17 of John 15 all the way into uh, the first few verses of chapter 16. This is the third week of Advent, and I want to share these lyrics with you from the song Sweet Little Jesus Boy. It's a spiritual song written in 1934, and it goes like this. Sweet little Jesus boy born in a manger. Sweet little holy child, we didn't know who you were. Long time ago it seems you were born, born in a manger, Lord. Sweet little Jesus boy. Get this, didn't know you'd come to save us, to take our sins away. Our eyes were blind, we did not see, we didn't know who you were. The song goes on, you have shown us how, and we are trying, Master, you have shown us how, even as you were dying. The world treats you mean, Lord, treats me mean too, but that's how things are done down here. We didn't know it was you. That kind of summarizes the whole passage that we're going to look at today. This idea of Christ coming into the world as John's gospel opens in chapter 1 with this epiphany that light has come into the darkness. Jesus came to his own people and they did not receive him. And the reason for that is they loved darkness rather than light. And now fast forward to where we are in John 15. It is the last night that Jesus has with his disciples before he is going to be betrayed by one of his followers and sold into the hands of the Jewish rulers and the Roman authorities. And the next day he will be on the cross giving his life for a world that didn't know who he was. This is a passage that is rich as Jesus has spoken in chapter 14 and 15 earlier telling his disciples, my peace I give you, a peace we just sung about, a peace that is lost on the world's ears, and that the the Son is going to leave and in his departure he's going to send the Holy Spirit who would bring things to understanding for the disciples. The Holy Spirit would comfort them and rally them around Jesus' words, causing them to have heart in such disheartening times. Now Jesus tells them, boys, buckle up. It's going to get really bad before it gets good. 
Let's just pick up and read the text, and then we're going to work our way through it, making some illustrations, some application, and hopefully, God willing, bring about an understanding of what Jesus is saying. So please follow along as I read from John chapter 15 and verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. How are we to understand this passage other than the obvious? It seems like things are going to get pretty rough for Jesus' disciples. Earlier in chapter 15, we learned that the true test of discipleship isn't going to be dying for Jesus, but actually living for Jesus, which is why he so repeatedly said, you need to abide in me. You need to obey me. You see, for the Christian, following Jesus means to live in dependence and obedience. Jesus has shown us this way. He came from the Father, He came into this world, and by His love and His obedience, His actions and His teachings, He has modeled for us a way of obeying God. And now it is their turn, these disciples. It is our turn. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15, Jesus instructed His disciples to abide in Him, which means to obey Him. He commanded them to love one another in verses 12 through 17. And now, by putting all these things at the forefront, he now pivots to persecution. He indicates this, that suffering for the name of Jesus is going to greatly test a believer's faith. That's the the big idea of the passage. That you and I, when we suffer for the name it will cause us to wrestle with the idea of abandoning the name 
to forsake the name. The falling away that's mentioned in 16 in verse 1 is the idea of apostasy. It's to renounce what you once held and to go in a different direction. It's to forsake it. It's to abandon these truths. And this brings us to our text. Jesus knows that when he dies on the cross, not only will his disciples be discouraged, but when he who has been kind of the gatekeeper, the one who has borne most of the wrath of the Jews to this time, when he's out of the way, guess what? It's all going to be focused on his disciples. And how will they handle this pressure? Will they run from it? He's urging them to hold fast. Zechariah 13 and verse 7 says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. We've heard the phrase, uh, cutting off the head of the snake. You, you get rid of the leader. You get rid of the brains and everything else will fall away. Well, one could hope that that's where it would stop. But Jesus is telling his disciples, no, this is actually going to get worse before it gets better. And he's preparing them for this hostility by weaving previous statements in with new insights. Notice in verse 17, he's repeated the command that he's mentioned at least twice before in this last night as they've rented this hall and they are sharing Passover together. He's told them that they need to love one another. This will be the distinguishing characteristic of Christians, that all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And that love isn't ooey-gooey. It means hugging prickly people. It means loving people who don't want to be loved. And it means hearing things that you don't always want to hear, but you need to hear. Jesus says, this is an essential mark in verse 17. And then he tells them in verses 18 and 19 that, the, that a servant, or verse 20, that a servant isn't greater than his master. The, the same way I have been treated, they're going to treat you. And then Jesus tells them why this was the case. Why will the world hate Jesus' disciples? And he says, for the same reason they hated me, because I exposed their sin. Now, we're going to get there in a moment. It's not like Jesus is running around like the hall monitor, waiting for people to, like, step out of line and then whack them. He wasn't a referee in, in, in soccer who's handing out yellow cards and then expelling somebody from a game with a red card. He did preach and teach truth that countered the way in which sinners lived. But it wasn't like Jesus was on a witch hunt. And yet... The end result is when people have light shined on their sin, they tend to have one of two responses. Either it shifts the paradigm or it leads to excuses and anger for that exposure. And that's why the world hates Jesus. Further, in verses 23 and 24, they hate him because they don't know God who sent him. And so Jesus is comforting the disciples by reminding them of God's sovereignty, as we see it in verse 25, that God foretold this would happen in the Old Testament, that they would hate His Son without a cause. And for the second time this night, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit and His work to testify about Jesus and His power to keep the disciples in the faith in spite of opposition. We see that in verses 26 and 27. 
And then finally Jesus says, guys, why am I telling you all this? This is chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Simply put, I'm telling you this in advance because I don't want you to walk away from the faith. When the stuff hits the fan and it gets really hard to be known as a follower of Jesus, I don't want you to be afraid and move away. I'm telling you this not so that you just know I'm right, but so that when these things happen and your hour comes as mine is here, to suffer for the faith, that you are so well prepared that you see, ah, yes, Christ told us this would happen, which means that this is under his knowledge and under his control. And I don't need to fear. Now, we need to ask this question. As we look at the text, Jesus is very clear that the world doesn't like him. And that as the disciples follow him and look like him, the world will not like them. Because they will by proxy do the same thing that Jesus did. Not looking for every fault, but living and teaching and preaching the gospel in such a way that it confronts sinners with their need for a savior. And therefore, they too will be treated just like Jesus was. we got to ask the question, are Christians hated by the world because of who we are? Socially, the way that we interact with this world, the way we spend our money, the way we dress, the way we talk, the places we do go, the places we don't go? Or does the world not like Christians because of what we believe? Now, if you're paying attention, you're saying, James, that's not a fair question. It could be one or the other, it could be both. And you're absolutely right. From our text, Jesus isn't concerned about the the fact that you might stick out like a sore thumb in society because of the way you conduct yourself or the way you don't conduct yourself. In the text, Jesus is giving us the theological argument for why the world doesn't like Christians. And it is because Jesus shines light in the darkness. It's solely a theological argument that Jesus is making. It's true that following Jesus will lead to certain attitudes and actions. The more we look like Jesus, guess what? The more we look like Jesus. And that will shape us. It should shape us. I mean, every member of South Canyon Baptist Church is is testifying to one another when we gather here that we are trying to live clean lives before the Lord, that we are confessing our sin, that we are putting away pride, we are putting away abusive authority, we are putting away lust and covetousness, that we are putting away lying and stealing, that we are following Christ. We will look like him. That will be, and that should be, an expected thing. But here's the the reality. Not everyone likes that. You've seen it at work. When you raise your head and say, you know, that wasn't ethical. Um, We can't bill the customers for more than it actually cost us and tell them that that's what it cost. That's stealing. You've seen that in school where there's favoritism, whether it's a coach who's elevating other players because of relationships and they're, they're silencing 
the, or they're taking away the opportunity for another athlete to play just because of a loyalty to a family or, or some personal preference. Reality is that by the time John is writing this, it's well after the city of Jerusalem has fallen to the Romans. John has lived persecution. The Jewish people, because of the fall of Jerusalem, were marked as troublemakers by society. And guess what? Christianity was simply viewed as a sect of Judaism. And so the book of Acts, it shows us that the first people to persecute Christians were, guess who? Jews. Now, I realize the context in which I'm saying these words, where Israel and Hamas are at war, and where college campuses are split about pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian rights, and how there's anti-Semitism increasing, I get that. But the text is telling us what's going to happen. And the people who are doing the wrong here are the Jewish people as a category persecuting Christians. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. As Acts unfolds in chapter 13 and chapter 14, and again in chapter 17 and 19, we see that the Jews of a particular city where the gospel was going forward would actually incite Gentiles to join in them in persecuting Christians. Now, whether that was to deflect animosity toward them, or whether it was simply capitalizing on the fact that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I don't know. But this isn't where it stopped. It continued. And as we see here in this passage, that the driving point is not simply that persecution is coming, rather it is God through Christ calling us to persevere in the face of suffering. You see, following Jesus is going to cost you. That could be the summary of the passage. But here's the other side of that coin. Not following Jesus will cost you. Not following Jesus means that you are taking the side of all this creation that is in rebellion against God. And you are saying, that's where my loyalty is. And Jesus is telling them all this in advance because he wants to produce faith in his people. And so let's just, here's a simple outline. All right, first point, verses 18 and 19. Don't be surprised when you suffer for following Jesus. Very simply, John knew this. He writes in 1 John 3, 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He got the message that Jesus shared that night. Now, we need to define who the world is because, as I just mentioned, in the early days, the ones persecuting the Christians were Jews, but it didn't stay that way. So this is not anti-Semitism. I'm not against Jews. In fact, according to one of my uncles, I'm like a 16th or a 32nd. I don't know. It may be the nose. Do you see it? So that's not what this is about. This is a historical point, and it's connected to what Jesus is saying here. So who is the world? It is the created moral order that is in active rebellion against God. It's the fact that God created a world, and it's not the dirt and the grass and the trees and the animals. It's the people who live on this globe. 
It's the structures and the governments that want to act corruptly and hurt people and exploit from people for their own selfish benefit. The reason for the world's hatred is clear. Jesus has already testified to this in chapter 7 and verse 7 because Jesus shows the world that its deeds are evil and they don't like that. And Jesus goes on in verses 18 and 19 to say, because they hated me, they will hate you and they will hate all who follow me because as you come, become more like me, you will do the same thing that I did, exposing their sin. You see, when Jesus is our king, when true conversion has taken place, Paul writes in in, uh, Colossians that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our loyalties have shifted. And guess what? When that change happens, we don't belong to this dark world anymore. And you know what that means? All the popularity that we had with this rebellious system is uh, this system that's rebelling against God. All that popularity is lost. It's gone. Because rebels don't like traitors. And they hate the Christ who they are in rebellion against. Here's the second thing we see in verses 20 through 25. We see the reason why we suffer for Jesus. I've already been all over this this morning. Verse 20, Jesus says, a servant isn't greater than his master. He takes his, he quotes himself from chapter 13 and verse 16 as he had washed the disciples' feet. He says, guys, guess what? There is no point in jockeying for position of honor or power in the kingdom of heaven because that's not how you get it. Look at me. You despise the lowest servants, and yet I am taking the form of the lowest servant. I'm washing your dirty feet. And Jesus applies that then to serving in power. He says that the kingdom of heaven and the way up is down. The way to exaltation is humiliation. And what he applied there to serving in honor in chapter 13, he now applies to the ministry and life of a disciple. You follow me and know that it's going to produce antagonism from the world. And yet, at the end of verse 20, did you notice the positive tone that Jesus struck? The world will respond to Jesus' disciples just as they did him. And guess what? Although many will hate him, some of them will actually embrace the gospel. You see that there in verse 20? Jesus wants it to be very clear here. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. There's a little bit of a silver lining in this dark cloud. And in verse 21, there's even more light breaks through because Jesus quickly takes the pressure off his disciples. Guys, it is not about your performance. It is about me. It is not about your ability to make a winsome argument as you share the gospel and logically lay this out so it's irrefutable. You have totally bookended this and only, only the stubborn can say it's not true. Now Jesus says it's all about him. The way in which people respond to you, if you are truly following Christ and not just being rude and being obnoxious and being a pagan like everybody else, 
But if you really are following Jesus and the aroma of Christ is coming out of you, then the people who react wrongly to that are actually reacting to Christ, not to you. And further, if there's rejection, it is because they don't know the Father. And so, Christian, this is comforting for us. Because I have been there, just like you, when you're sharing the gospel and you're stumbling over your words, your throat like shrinks up to smaller than a straw, your tongue feels like it weighs 200 pounds, and every scripture verse you ever memorized has now left your brain, and you're like, uh, 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 Jesus loves you, uh, and you're just struggling to try to say something. Know this, that in your presentation of the gospel, however perfect it is or however lacking it may seem. The work that's being done is Christ's work. And he'll be faithful to it. It's not about your performance. It's about who he is. And so we need to remember this truth. It's not about the individual. It's about Jesus. Verses 22 through 24, under this same thought of why will we suffer for Jesus, not only does he say that a servant isn't greater than his master, they treated me this way, they'll treat you this way. And not only does he qualify the fact that your suffering isn't because they really hate you, although they may, it's ultimately because you look too much like me, and that's offensive. But then, here it is, in verses 22 through 24, that Jesus has exposed their sin and unbelief. And this is so profound. When you look at it, what does Jesus say? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, in verse 21. And again in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, that is not saying everybody was perfect until Jesus showed up, and then all of a sudden, he messed everything up. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus has been very clear all throughout this as he spoke with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a guy that knew his Bible inside and out, upward and downward, better than you and I. And Jesus says, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. And this isn't a natural birth. It's a spiritual birth. The sin is already there. What Jesus is saying is they were guilty of sin. But now that he's come, their guilt could no longer be ignored. You know, it's just like once you see something, you can't unsee it. Jesus is saying, my presence in this world has so shown a light on things that you cannot unknow what you have just learned about me. I'm aware the light went out. I'm not taking that as a sign to stop. According to James, chapter 1 and verse 13, the scriptures say that no one can say that the Father tempts us or causes us to sin. In fact, our sin, like a fish hungry for bait, is responding to outside stimulation and inward pressures. And we're pursuing something. And that's what leads to sin and ultimately to death. Jesus says what's happened here is that God had to get into technicolor. He had to 4D this experience. He had to so reveal himself to his creation that he actually clothed himself with flesh 
to walk these dirty roads, to speak to these people, and to eat, sleep, and drink alongside them so that they would know that truly God exists and who that God is. And this clearest revelation of God, this clear understanding of where our sin is, they have so strongly reacted to it that they have rejected Him. Jesus says over and over through His Gospel, hasn't He? To see me is to see the Father. To hear me is to hear the Father. And the same is true whether that was in the New Testament times or in Scripture today. And that is why even now today, as you sit here this morning, rejecting and hating Jesus is such a capital crime because there's no reason to hate your God, your Creator, except for the fact we want autonomy. We want our right to say yes or no to things. We want to be our own gods. And the reality is that there is a God who has made all of this. Let me, let me bring your attention to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It speaks of this very thing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He, that's the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and, hear me, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You see, God has made Himself... These are not just Christmas songs about some strange season where we spend bazillions of dollars to give... Give stuff away that is going to be outmoded and replaced within weeks or months. The songs that we sing are telling us this story that God so loved the world that He gave, literally gave His only Son. Jesus came into this world and took on flesh, and He was not believed to be the Son of God. And so He was crucified on a cross. Yet He rose again. And that victory over death and his perfect obedience to God has so atoned for sin that you and I can be forgiven of all the things we've done if we will place our faith in him and his work. Verse 25 shows us that nothing can stop God's plans. He says it, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. We need to find encouragement here, Christian, because nothing that happens to us in this world, not cancer, not lost jobs, not a lost marriage, not poverty, not sickness, not even death itself can frustrate God's work of salvation and redemption. The fact that the world responded to Christ in this way is just a fulfillment of Scripture. If David was hated for no reason, and that's what we see in Psalm 35 and verse 19, and Psalm 69 and verse 4, which both may be referenced here in this quote, they hated me without a cause. So if David was hated for no reason, then why can't his greater son, Jesus, be hated for no reason? Now, here's something we need to see. If God has the power to even take people's hate and use it to further his purposes? Oh man, 
What does that tell us about our God? He has real power. Nothing can stop our God. Even when governments oppose it and when the Bible was banned and they made every effort to erase it from human history, even when the church is being persecuted and Christians are being slaughtered in villages in Africa, even when it is illegal to gather with God's people and worship as it is in China or North Korea, God's plans will not be stopped. Which brings us to Jesus' third point here in verses 26 through 27. It's the Holy Spirit will show these things to Jesus' followers. The Holy Spirit is going to reveal these things to Jesus' followers. Now, why would they need the Spirit if he's just spoken? Do you remember what we talked about last Sunday at the same time? Exactly. Exactly. We need the Spirit. None of us are going to remember everything And honestly, maybe we want to forget some things, right? But Jesus is promising that the Holy Spirit will enable and empower the disciples to obey God just as Jesus had. The Spirit, he says in verse 26, is going to testify. It's going to bear witness that Jesus is who he says he is. And then Jesus says, yes, it is comforting to know that the Holy Spirit will Do all these things in the world, but don't think you're off the hook, Christian. Verse 27 says, and you also must bear witness about me. These disciples who have been with Jesus from the very beginning are to bear witness of the things that they have seen and heard. And certainly John is writing from his own perspective. He was one of those who had been there from the very beginning. So how does verse 27 apply to us who are here today? Because we're late to the party, like a couple thousand years late. What does this have to do with us? Well, ever since the ascension of Christ to heaven, Christians have always been dependent on the Spirit to bear witness to Jesus. And nothing's going to change that. So we've seen that persecution is coming in 18 and 19. We've seen that persecution is the result of the world rejecting God's mercy as revealed in Jesus, verses 21 through 27. And now Jesus gets to the real danger in all of this in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. This persecution, you're suffering, Christian. Granted, we're here freely. There are no armed guards either protecting us from antagonists nor keeping us in here. But I do think that some of us, maybe many of us, are suffering to such a degree we question whether or not God cares. And if God can't heal me from the sickness, if he can't change my situation, then what's the point? So hear what Jesus says in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. I think it's his main point. He says it is. I have said all these things to keep you. You see what Jesus is saying? Your faith matters to him. And he has said he holds them. His father holds us in his hand and no one is able to pry back his fingers and pluck us from the father's hands. This is how good our shepherd is. This is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the one who is the door. This is the one who is living water. This is the one who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus says these things so that you and I will trust in Him. 
both personally and pastorally, John had seen that people can fall away. People can apostatize. That was seen in 1 John 2 and 19 where he says, the reason they went out from us is because they were never from us. They were never of us. He had to deal with it pastorally in his church, comforting the congregation of, why are so many people leaving the faith? Why are they not coming back to this gathering? Why are they not holding to the doctrines? Because the fire is too hot. The pressure is too great. And that is not that we can lose our salvation. That is evidence that they did not possess salvation. It's important for us to make a cultural point here as we come to verse 2 because the synagogue and being kicked out of it really has no significance to us. So let's just think for a quick moment before we wrap things up how it must have felt for the Jews. Now, mind you, it is the Jews against the world. That's the way it is today, right? You listen to the news, it's the Jews against the world. That's not new. The paranoia, the fear, the concern, it's real. It's, it's been that way from the beginning. Being a part of the synagogue was their entire social construct. They didn't have Greek friends and Gentile friends. They didn't have business partners who were non-Jews. They didn't have markets where they could go and buy anything. They had to buy food that was kosher and that was clean according to the law. Everything revolved around the synagogue. It was the hub of everything. It was, it was the bank for the Jews. It was the social interaction. It was the teaching. It was the legal system. The law was everything, or the synagogue was everything to them. They had no friends outside of it. So if Jesus is going to cost you everything, and you will be expelled from that very thing that you hold sacred, where are you then? You're out in the cold. You're vulnerable. You are alone. You've got no friends. I'll never forget I had a Jewish, a Messianic Jew. That means he was a Christian. By birth, he was a Jew, but he came to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And he told us, classmates in seminary, that his parents in New York actually had a funeral for him when he became a Christian came from a wealthy family, all of that money was cut off from him. He was in seminary on his own dime, learning how to live when he called his dad and mom and they wouldn't talk to him on the phone. I mean, this, this isn't that far removed. As I said some time ago, the earliest persecution of Christians came from the Jews, as, they, as we see that throughout the book of Acts. And maybe that's what helps us make sense of Jesus' statement at the end of verse 2 when he says that whoever kills you will actually think they're doing a service to God. Jesus isn't justifying their actions. He's simply stating that they actually believe what they're doing is the right thing and it's a good thing. We see this as Paul in, in Acts 8 and 9, he's on his way to Damascus. He had been throwing people in jail. He had voted to have people killed. He truly believed he was serving God by stamping out Christianity. And as I said a while ago, I'll say it again, this has been not unique to Jews persecuting Christians, but to even Christians persecuting other Christians. Uh, Muslims killing non-Muslims. 
Christians have used God to justify persecuting minority groups throughout the ages. Whether it was Jews persecuting Christians or later Christians persecuting Jews or Muslims persecuting non-Muslims in the name of God or even in our cultural context where we live here in South Dakota where Christians persecuted Native Americans. And what we learn here is a really telling thing. One of the most dangerous things is radical religious zealots or ideological zealots who believe they are doing right by hurting other people. Whether that's Hitler and Stalin with communism or totalitarianism, or whether it's even religion in the Middle Ages or in our day and age. When people believe they're bringing glory to God by shaming and hurting other people, they do not know Jesus, and they do not know the Father. That is why we must stand up against anti-Semitism, just like we should stand up against racism against black people or brown people or Asian people. That is why James, the writer of the epistle of James, says when people come into your assembly and the rich say, hey, you know, you poor people kind of stay in your section and don't bother us, that's wrong. When we as elders and pastors show partiality to someone who's got a lot of money and then we run ramshod over someone who's just able to get to church by getting a ride with someone, they don't have a vehicle, that's wrong. Once again, as we get back to the text, looking at verse 3 of chapter 16, Jesus says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said them to you. And he goes back to his point in verse 1. I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, when these events take place, you will remember that I told you. Jesus, John tells us in, <clears throat> in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. A little later in John chapter 1, we read, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so what do we see? Jesus was sent into the world. The world rejected him. And guess what? The very one who is beside the Father comes into the world and reveals to us who the Father is, and thus he is still rejected. And because God and Jesus are rejected, we should not think it strange, Christian, that we suffer the same. And as Jesus returns in verse 4 to his main point, he said all this so that you and I would remember these things and hold fast. Kalen stole my thunder in his prayer. I was going to close with 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. So we will close with that. It's a great text. And repetition is the key to learning, <clears throat> so you'll hear it twice. Jesus does not want his disciples to fall away. And what's his solution? It's to prepare them for what will happen before it happens, so that they will have confidence that what is taking place is both known by God and under his control. It's the same comfort that Jesus took when he himself was suffering on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? 
because Jesus bore our sin. And God could not even look on His own Son because of the guilt that He bore on our behalf. And yet Jesus knew that this great reversal was taking place at the very moment when it seemed His enemies had won. He was dying and the whole mission was lost. Jesus knew that He was victorious. And this victory would account for yours and my salvation. Jesus' victorious hour can lead to yours, Christian. It both has in the cross, and it can in spite of whatever adversity you're facing, joblessness, sickness, relationship struggles. It is the point that Jesus is saying, don't let your faith shrivel up or be cast aside because life has gotten too hard. I told you it would get this way. So trust me and keep following me. Christian, please, as we looked to this time of Christmas, a season of hope and joy, you were like, what in the world? You just totally rained on our parade today, James. I'm not trying to do that. In fact, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not picking a random text This is where we're at in our series through John's Gospel. This is God's Word for us in His providence. He's guided us to this passage on this day and in these circumstances in which you and I are living and breathing. And He's done that in order to accomplish the same goal that He had for those disciples who were with Him from the very beginning, to strengthen your faith, Christian. You are not alone, first, and second, and more importantly, your God is is with you. And as Paul says, greater is he who's in you than he that is in the world. And so, as a result of this, we close knowing that this trial is working for us a far greater and glorious fruit. Let's go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. Kalen quoted it. I want us to read the passage together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verses 16 through 18, mind you, the Apostle Paul, a guy who has five times been stoned for the faith, a man who has gone hungry, who has been beaten, um, he has been beaten, I think that was the five times with cattails, you know, the 39 lashes, because the law forbid 40, lest you overdo it. I don't know that there's much difference between 39 and 40, but this is the guy writing these things who's been abandoned, who's been neglected, who's been shipwrecked, lost at sea, who's suffered many things. And what does he say in verse 16? We do not lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our flesh, we're getting old. Our bodies are breaking down. Our inner self, our soul, our spirit is being renewed day by day. And then he has the audacity to say this. This this thing that you're dealing with, Christian, is light and momentary. And it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is not minimizing what you're dealing with. He's just saying this. When you compare these two, the glory of all eternity with your Jesus... This stuff really does pale in comparison. And that's meant to be an encouragement. It's not meant to minimize and make you feel like, suck it up, buttercup, you know. Don't be a snowflake. 
It's not all that bad. Just power on. No, 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 no. This is a guy who has nearly died many times over. And he's able to say it. And what does he go on to say? We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The entire thing that we're doing here today is an unseen eternal thing. You realize that? We are here worshiping a God whom we have not seen with our own eyes. We are here reading and studying a book that we never wrote and that we're making our best efforts to understand and extract from it something to go away with. Everything that we're built around is about the unseen. It's about the eternal. And God says it is worth it. And so as we close this morning, let us not lose heart when we suffer. In fact, let us not just endure, but let us persevere. Hold your faith, Christian. It's all you got. Don't throw it away for temporary pleasures or for long, torturous suffering. Hold fast to Christ, knowing that He is holding you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to receive these words as you have spoken them. As the very words of God. This isn't a pep talk rooted in man-made techniques. This is the simplicity of the gospel that a holy God died for rebellious sinners. And in love, he sent his son to purchase their salvation. And yet, they still rejected the Son. They rejected you. And yet, your power, your spirit, and the witness of these disciples, it's, it's, it's evident. Because here we are today, 2,000 years later, gathering together around these same truths. Around the same person of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, may your church prevail. And may every evil device that's raised against it be destroyed. And we pray this not only for the church, but we pray this for every individual Christian in the body. And we pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' holy name, amen.